Hey, Mark, you know I've been spending a lot more time in Denmark recently. Yeah, the uh, bakery date uh, is in the calendar still. Well, it being a Nordic country uh, and everything, I found the perfect solution to streaming all those lovely films and TV shows that we review whilst I'm there. Well, what on earth would that perfect solution be, Simon? Well, Nord VPN, of course. You see, it's Nord Nordic. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's I get it. Moving on. With one click, NordVPN can change my device's virtual location so I can access all the content I need when I'm abroad. I can now watch poor things, whether in London or Paris. Why even wait until you're on holiday? You can do it right now and access content in over 61 different countries, unlocking all this content for less than a price of a Pano Raisin a month. Pano Raisin. Pano Raisin. To take our huge discount huge. off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. Our link will also give you four extra months for free on the two-year plan. Now, back to the show. Hello. Well, here we are again. It's that weird time of year between Christmas and New Year. It's like the, I always think it's like the space-time continuum. It's like it goes on forever. Yes. You, you, is it Thursday? Is it Tuesday? <laughs> is it half past four? Have I eaten that amount of peanuts? <laughs> anyway. No, it's cashews. So some Christmas is cashew or walnuts. You never uh, eat a walnut, uh, well, but then Christmas the comes. Is, I, um, and I have to have unsalted Peanuts, which really are no joy. Do, do you you don't eat salt? Well, I'm trying to have less salt, you know. But I mean, okay. Christmas Christmas is a time for salt. I it think is. That's, <laughs> that's the truth. Salt on the roads, salt on the peanuts. <laughs> anyway, we're here to provide some distraction from the relatives, the peanuts, and the endless rounds of Monopoly. If that's a convention, that's a far too conventional game. How has it been? Have you managed to do that? Have you? Have you managed Monopoly to? would not... We have a, a table full of uh, board games, which Child 3 uh, has provided, but he's always more enthusiastic about playing them than... Anyone uh, else than, in the than, whole than, world. Than, in fact, <laughs> anyone else in the whole world. That's right. And because I've been talking a lot, my voice has gone back to where it was just a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> which is very annoying. You're going to be off Grace. It's radio tomorrow. Yeah, I know. Anyway, so, we're, going, we're going to bring you uh, here a montage because it's the season of montages. It is. Um, it's the season of greatest hits, by which I mean like compilation albums, Yes, but also greatest hits radio. And now uh, we bring to you a montage of the best bits from the show this year. You're going to hear reviews from some of the biggest blockbuster successes this year. Such as Top Gun Maverick, Top Gun uh, Maverick, Elvis, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, plus interviews with Jeff Goldblum, Charlotte Rampling, and Rowan Atkinson. But as well as these magnificent highlights from 2022, I also got to interview Tom Hanks and Marina Trevino for A Man Called Otto, which isn't out until early January 2023. But we got time with them over Christmas, so we wanted to share it with you today. Because if you get a chance to talk to them, then you're not going to say. No, thank you. So let's hear it then, starting with Mark's review of everything, everywhere, all at once. What else is out? Oh, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. I is do kind like of, that as a title. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Although I have to say for ages, it was being referred to, a friend of mine had seen it and really liked it, and they kept calling it um, everything, every, everything, everywhere, all at the same time. And so every single time I say the movie title now, I have to kind of correct myself, get everything everywhere all at once. So 
This is a really inventive movie that's been in the. It's been a bit of press recently because Jamie Lee Curtis took to uh, social media to say that that, that that their movie was kicking uh, Doctor Strange in the multiverse of madness. Both, uh, you know, because it was doing doing well at the box office and it cost. 25 million, where I think Doctor Strange cost around about 200 million. And so Jamie Lee Curtis said, you know, competitive, golly, yes. Although she didn't say golly. She, uh, no. she, she was very, she was very, you met Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, right? Because yes. you interviewed her for the, the new Halloween movie. So it's a multiverse movie um, that, ha- that does something interesting with the idea of the multiverse. Remember when we were talking about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness uh, last week? And I said, well, it. It doesn't really advance the idea of the multiverse, although it does have some some interest. Like I think Elizabeth Olsen is the kind of heart and soul of that movie, actually, although Doctor Strange is in the title. In the case of this, Michelle Yeoh is um, a Chinese-American woman who runs a laundromat with her husband, Waymond, uh, who is, you know, sort of smiling and happy, but their marriage seems to have gone you know, seems to have gone south. They have, they don't appear to have the spark that they once had, and she is ground down. She, they are facing um, an an audit uh, by the IRS. A character played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who tells them, looking at their their accounts, this does not look good, and they have to get through the audit. And she also uh, is facing a problem with her father is visiting, and she's always felt that she disappointed her father, and their daughter is somebody with whom she seems to have lost contact. She can't say the thing that she really needs to say, which she needs to say, I love you. Instead, she says, oh, you're getting fat because she can't think of the right thing to say. The daughter is in uh, a long-term relationship with a girlfriend that she can't tell her father that his granddaughter is gay because she's somehow embarrassed. Everything has kind of reached this point of stasis. She gets into a lift in the tax office and suddenly, Waymond, who is usually very placid, turns to her and says, right, I'm not your husband. I'm another version of your husband from a multiverse. There are infinite numbers of multiverses, and we've been searching for somebody to fight this rising threat, which is going to wipe out all, and you are the only person that can do We know that you're the person, and you have a choice. You're going to get out of this lift. You can either go right to the janitor's closet, or you can go left into the tax audit office. And at first, she Obviously, she thinks this is nuts. Why are you behaving like this? Very rapidly, it becomes apparent that actually she is living in a completely different reality. Um, The production team, in their hilarious way, have chosen a clip that is absolutely dialogue-free. Oh, good. Because when stuff starts to happen, suddenly the film starts to leap through different genres. Are you going to talk us through it like you did with Doctor Strange? Shall I do that? Shall I talk us through the Okay, so I'm going to talk you through the clip. This so essentially, once the multiverse thing starts to happen, the film starts to genre hop. Often, like in a really kind of you know bafflingly kaleidoscopic way, as our central character discovers that there is more to life than laundry and taxes. Here's the clip. So they're in the tax office. That's a, a truncheon being battered against a uh, part of office furniture. Michelle Yeoh is about to uh, engage in a full-on martial arts fight sequence. She's good. With a wooden spoon and uh, a trowel, which is, the wooden spoon's just been destroyed. She's now throwing a laptop, which has just been struck into two pieces in midair. Top martial arts action happening in the tax office. She's hitting him with 
hitting him with a computer keyboard, which nearly took her eye out. Yes. Aerial, this wire work. Oh, she hit him on the head. She hit him on the head. I mean, I, I don't think we're doing full justice to what's happening here. Well, what can you do? You can't just play it with. I know. Any... Okay, there are two people having it, but she's now slapping she's each now other. Slapping each other. <laughs> and that's a clip from Elvis. I'm delighted to say that one of its stars is Tom Hanks. Can there be more than one star of a movie called Elvis? Wouldn't it be Elvis? That would be Austin Butler. Yeah. It's kind of like. There's how many stars are in a movie called Jesus of Nazareth? There's really only one, and that uh, and that's that's kind of like. Is that your next picture? Oh, wouldn't that be great? Uh, yeah, I think we have something to add to that saga. I think yeah. the greatest story ever told has not been totally told yet, so we'll we'll add a little bit more to it. Yeah, have you ever been in a biblical? No, epic? I can't say they've had, they've come <laughs> after me for the robes and sandals thing. The last time we spoke was for Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. So it's January 2020, which is very you know feels like an eternity. Yes, uh, yeah. ago, and you and you told us in that interview, this too shall pass. Uh, so we had that we had that conversation, and then shortly afterwards. You went to Australia, this is relevant to what we're talking yes, about, yes. and you and your wife got COVID. Yeah. And I wondered if you, if you had to remember those words yourself, because we didn't know very much about it uh, at the time. No, that was, uh, we were six days away from starting filming of what would have been, I think, a different version of our Elvis movie. I mean, we were reading the stories that everybody else was, and in fact, we had had this the month before we were in Australia, and uh, the health officials came around and spoke to all of us Americans about this thing that was on the horizon that was beginning to spread out of Asia and out of China, this thing called COVID. And then when when, uh, when uh, we happened to contract it, it happened in more or less the wink of an eye, and she got it first, and then I came down with it about 12 hours later, and then down for the count for the better part of 11 days. So that, that, first, that first blast was, uh, it wasn't uh, life-threatening, luckily to us, but it was debilitating. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Hello, Simon Mayo. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for doing this. I was just about to tell you that I'm very excited to be here and to see you because I, I discovered you and Mark on my YouTube, on my telephone that I yeah. have in my pocket right here, and I've watched many hours. I keep going from one to another. I keep binge watching uh, your broadcasts and your reviews and your conversations. I love them. I love what you're doing, and I'm thrilled to see you in the flesh and, and, and actually be here with you. Well, I don't think I've done an interview over 21 years, which has started in a more promising way. <laughs> if that means the arc is going to be uh, dramatical, we no. have only down to go, I guess. Well, I spent all morning listening to your records and uh, records. Won yeah, wo wondering when the next album might be along the way. But anyway, you're not here to talk about it. You're so records, kind to say that. Well, we'll talk about it whenever you want. Okay. But uh, thanks. You're a jazz fan? I have become a jazz fan through reading Michael Connolly books and reading about Bosch. Isn't that interesting how you, how you can get into jazz from a fictional mm -hmm. character? In, in terms of pretend fictional worlds, where are we? So we're 30 years on pretty much from mm. Jurassic Park. Where are we in, in the story of the Jurassic universe? Uh, let's see if I can sum up as much as I know. You know, it was now, t t I guess, in real time 
time, right? Because my character seems to have aged exactly that a literal amount of time, 29 years ago or something, the events in Jurassic Park, if you've seen that, happened, you know, where they built a park, you know, where they displayed dinosaurs and I said, uh, bad idea, et cetera, et cetera. And now, uh, since the last one, if you've caught up with the world movies, these trilogy of Jurassic World movies, uh, whose architect was Colin Trevorrow, whom I have nothing but admiration and affection for. He was, I think, think terrific. Who's Um, who's directed this? Yeah, he directed and, and wrote the first one, Jurassic World. Then he wrote the second one. J.A. Bayona directed that one. I was in it for those little... Those little, that little scene, as as you may have seen, and then this one happens in real time, four years after what happened in the last one, and dinosaurs are now all over the world. Watching Top Gun Maverick, I laughed. I gripped the edge of my seat, and at one point, to my eternal shame, I found myself crying. At an emotional bonding scene between two people chewing the scenery, and I think it, it's got under my skin. It is that, is that a Val Kilmer moment you're talking about? No, actually, I thought the Val Kilmer moment was very moving. And uh, yeah, that, I that, if was, that was when yes, you were crying. No, it wasn't. It was later on. No, during the Val Kilmer moment, I thought this is interesting. They've judged this really well because that could have been. It would have been really easy to get that completely wrong, and they didn't. I thought they judged that really well, and I, the cinema that I was in, there was absolute hush during that scene, which I thought was was done really well. I love Jennifer Connelly. Um, uh, you know, I think she has a fairly underwritten role as the sassy bartender who's sort of the love interest in the absence of Kelly McGillis, who apparently wasn't invited to this particular party. But in the end, it works because like the, you know... Like the Jets, it's a spectacular piece of machinery, and I don't say that in a bad way, because I love fairground rides, I love carnival rides, and I love them when they do the thing that they're meant to do. And I went into Top Gun with no... Top Gun Maverick... With no emotional involvement, and it got me in the feels. You know, it was pulling at my heartstrings. I was a little bit in love with Tom Cruise in a strange way, because it was just like... (laughs) How are you so... He does this thing with his face, which obviously I can't do, but he moves bits of his face around and little parts of you die inside. (laughs) And he's he's 60 in July. It's just, yeah, which is just terrifying. So so it it did the thing, and it really was one of the movies that says to you, this is why going to the cinema is different from sitting at home watching Netflix. I mean, I saw it on an IMAX screen, and if you're going to go and see it, and everybody will, it's going to be a massive hit, isn't it? It's going to be huge. Go and see it on the biggest possible screen, turned up loud. And because it's a spectacle. It is a mechanical spectacle, but just because it's mechanical doesn't mean it doesn't get under your skin. And I just, in the end, I just went, okay, I give up. I like it. Yes, it is a fantastic film. Clearly, the key test is what Mark thinks, because not, he's not just the film critic, he's also an Elvis aficionado. Well, this is what he thinks. Well, we kind of preempted this a little bit last week when you said three words, and I said, it is ace. So this is Baz, oh, Luhrmann's, yeah, bi- this is Baz Luhrmann's biopic of Elvis and his relationship with Colonel Tom Parker, who was, interestingly enough, some years ago, a couple of years ago, when uh, Tom Hanks was about to go off and make this film and he said oh, i'm going to play colonel tom parker and i said who was neither a colonel nor a tom nor indeed a parker a line which i have to say appears almost verbatim in the film and i'm not suggesting for one you minute you should have a credit for certain yeah because i must have heard it from somewhere else if uh, if it does anyway so it's about 
Elvis's relationship with Tom Parker. And Tom Parker um, narrates the story, much like, and you made this observation when you were talking to uh, to Tom Hanks, it's like Salieri narrating the story of Mozart in Amadeus. Um Colonel Tom Parker is a carnival huckster. He's got a voice in his performance by uh, Tom Hanks, which is somewhere between Elmer Fudd and Bela Lugosi's Dracula. And he sees Elvis at the Louisiana Hayride, which is the clip that we just heard. And basically he sees dollar signs. He sees his future. And he then, you know, wrestles Elvis to him. They make the deal on a Ferris wheel because, you know, his background is in dancing chickens and in carnivals and in that stuff. And he says, look, you know, you come with me and... I will make you a star and he will take 50% uh, of everything. That sequence that we just heard is absolute dynamite. And it's the it's the moment in the film when you can almost feel the whole of the audience exhale and go, okay, we're safe. Because Austin Butler absolutely nails that performance. He walks out wearing the, you know, the pink suit, the pink pegs, and there's the, you know, there's the the get a haircut cry from the crowd. And then he starts moving. And the way in which he moves, and huge credit here to uh, movement coach Polly Bennett, um, the way in which he moves just completely captures the electricity of Elvis's performances. And you said to me yourself that electricity was the word that you thought of when you saw yeah. that Louisiana like Hayride sequence. Like it's being passed through him. Yeah. And, it, and it, it really is an uncanny moment. But it's also a moment that tells you, okay, this is fine. We have this nailed. Bear in mind, a lot of people in the past have kind of, you know, have, have done performances of Elvis. So, you know, whether it's Kurt Russell in uh, in John Carpenter's Elvis or whether it's, uh, you know, Michael Shannon in Elvis and Nixon, we've seen a lot of people attempting to capture Elvis on screen or, you know, Val Kilmer is the kind of spectral Elvis in, in True Romance. It's very, very hard to get beyond something which is which is simply a, a caricature. Actually, I think that Kurt Russell is not bad at all. But this is in a whole different league. I mean, this is absolutely, it's like watching the spirit move somebody. The story then moves on from that to cover the rest of the career. We see Parker basically using national service as a way of controlling and neutering Elvis's power. By the time he comes out of the army, he's essentially being controlled. He's fed into this series of anemic Hollywood movies. And the film itself then kind of takes the style briefly of those kind of anemic Hollywood movies. Because one thing that Lerman does is he plays with form all the time. You have done this work before, haven't you? Uh, no, actually. I'm new to the company. <laughs> You've never done house-sitting before? No, not as such. But please don't worry. I have a house too. Well, I used to have a house, so all this is very familiar territory. Huh. Oh, here, let me... I'll get that for you. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Let me. Oh dear. I'll just. Uh, well, Lando used to call us every day. If you wouldn't mind doing the same. Absolutely. My pleasure. Have a good holiday, Mrs. Colstad Bergen Batten. That's it. Bye. And that is uh, it's a, a clip from episode one of Man vs. B. Rowan Atkinson. Hello, how are you? 
I'm very well, thank you. Very nice to be here. Very nice to see you. And there, how do you think Man vs. B works as a piece of radio, audio drama there? Well, I have to say, yes, having just listened to that, that I, I was surprised that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So that's good. Uh, but no, o- overall, it wouldn't work well at all as a piece of radio drama because it is. there's a lot of dialogue in the first episode and there's a lot of dialogue in the last episode and very little in the sort of seven episodes in, in between. Yeah. yeah. So introduce us to Trevor who is the the character we heard there. Yeah, Trevor Bingley. He's a guy, he's a sort of newish character for me, I suppose. He's he's one of the nicer people I've played. I regard him a a much nicer person than, say, Mr Bean, uh, and not quite so sort of smug and awful as as Johnny English is. So so I think he's he's a slightly more, I would like to claim, maybe I'm wrong, three-dimensional character character compared to some other characters that I've played. He's he's a genuinely nice man. I think he's a sort of, you know, middle-aged, older man who's obviously lost his job. Um, we don't know why, although we discover some reasons why he's lost other jobs in the past, uh, later in the series. Uh, and he's got an ex-wife and he's got a daughter uh, with whom he's trying to arrange a holiday. Uh, and the very week that he's supposed to be going on holiday with his teenage daughter, he manages out of the blue to get a job, which is a job as a house sitter. Uh, He's never done house sitting before, as that clip might have indicated. So he's manifestly underqualified for the job and he's got to just work it out so he's he's house sitting for this very wealthy couple who live in a very splendid house full of very splendid objects um, and he's there hopefully for the following week but they actually come back early from their holiday for reasons that would that will become clear and you haven't mentioned the bee I haven't mentioned the bee no no well actually I, I haven't mentioned it because actually what I've just described was the starting point in terms of our Script writing, I suppose. It started off as a house-sitting project, you know, and it was called, actually, House Sitter. And then, uh, but then we decided that uh, that a very, you know, engaging and interesting catalyst for whatever comedy and nonsense that we wanted to happen in this house during Trevor's house-sitting, we thought would be created by introducing a bee. So basically, the middle seven episodes of the show is a battle between Trevor and this B, and and as I say, the show was called House Sitter, and then and then Netflix, in their wisdom, they they like a title that tells the story of the show more <laughs> bluntly and crudely than the word House Sitter, which was deemed to be slightly more oblique, <laughs> and they wanted something more direct. So we ended up with Man versus B, which is a good title, I think, and it's, yes. it certainly tells the st- story. And, and did the, was it the was it the story and the confrontation between the man and the bee that created Trevor, or had you thought of Trevor and then found a story for him, which came first? Uh, that's a good question. No, I think we started with the bee and that story, and then I was sort of you know tasked with the job of creating a character that could you know work in this context, and also very importantly have the other dimension of the fact that he's got a daughter and an ex-wife and, he, and, he, and he's a nice guy. He's having to negotiate basic family issues and family challenges and problems at the same time as trying to hold down this job of being a house sitter and fighting a bee. And it just required, you know, someone who wasn't, as I say, too one or two dimensional. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about 
Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. This episode is brought to you by the curated streaming service Movie. Mark, for our wonderful listeners who already have a movie account, and for those who might be thinking about getting one, could you please tell us what films they can enjoy this May? Certainly, Simon. This month, Movie are launching their Cannes Takeover. You know how much I love Cannes. And in honour of the Cannes Film Festival, which kicks off this month, here is a selection of what they have available to stream in the UK. They have Annette, which is the Leos Carax musical with uh, music by Sparks, which is absolutely wonderful. And Tokyo Gar, which is the film by uh, German director Wim Wenders, who travels to Tokyo to explore the world of one of his cinematic heroes, Yasujiro Ozu. That's Mubi's Can Takeover series. What else? Well, there's also Voila Vada, which is a look back on some of the best of the famous French director. There's Cleo from 5 to 7, Le Bonheur, Vagabond, The Gleaners and I, and The Beaches of Agnes. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Mayo. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. Hey, it's Ben Bailey-Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, schmestions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days, and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kermode. So that, I think, we're virtually done, apart from Thor. Thor, love and thunder. And it is Thor 4. <laughs> it is Thor 4. It's the fourth <laughs> Thor. So Thor, love and thunder. You said I'm Thor. I said wear a saddle, Philly. That's the one. Tom Hiddleston. So this is the sequel to Thor Ragnarok, once again directed by Taika Waititi, who co-wrote the script with Jennifer Caton Robinson. It opens with a scene of Christian Bailed. Christian Bailed, him. Gore losing his daughter in the desert, then finding himself in what appears to be an outtake from the flower pot men or in the night garden in which he falls out with his God and declares, this is my vow, all gods will die. Therefore, he becomes 
the God Butcher. Call the God Butcher. Which, the God to be butcher. honest, if you were offered that as a role, you go, yep, okay, yep, that I'll sounds good. That. We then cut to Korg, uh, humorously retelling Thor's story so far. You know, lots of sort of semi literate in jokes about it. he lost his brother again and and then again, and then enjoying a classic Thor adventure in which he accidentally destroys a temple in a sequence that looks like a very badly CG rendered version of a heavy metal video with some Muppets. The main thing is he is still pining for Jane, a character we all forgot about some time ago, is now battling against stage four cancer, but who, thanks to a convoluted plot twist inspired by Jason Aaron's Mighty Thor uh, strips, finds herself united with Thor's reconstructed hammer, which is sworn to protect her and which reconstructs itself in her presence, thereby turning her into Mighty Thor, who is a female version of Thor. You've seen the film. Tell me if this is wrong. A female version of Thor, whilst Thor, played by Chris Hemsworth, misses both her and the hammer, who is with her, but has now been replaced by his... Axe Stormbreaker. Yeah? Yeah, I mean you I mean it's not that confusing. Here's a clip. So that's the ex-girlfriend, is it? The old ex-girlfriend. Jodie Foster. Jane Foster. The one that got away. The one that got away. That means escaped. Yeah. Yeah. Must be hard for you to see your ex-girlfriend and your ex-hammer hanging out and getting on so well. What you up to, bro? Go to daddy. No. No. I was just calling you. Another visual yeah. clip. Another visual clip. So the gag is he's calling the hammer and then his axe comes up. You see, his axe is like an ex. His axe is his ex. His, well, yeah. No, no, his axe, is, his axe is jealous of his ex. That, incidentally, is a gag that will run throughout the whole film. Thor treating his hammer like his old girlfriend and his axe like his new girlfriend. And that's basically the tone of the whole movie, the kind of, you know, knowing jokes about, hey, we're making a superhero movie, but we know we're doing it. So, you know, we're making lots of jokes about it. Therefore, you know, got characters dressed as gods, but they talk like they're in an episode of Friends because we're very, very postmodern. And then the plot is that the children of New Asgard are stolen by Gore, who incidentally looks exactly like the nun from the Nunjuring movies. So from now on, it's going to be quiet, quiet, quiet. Bail! I thought he he looked uh, like Voldemort. Really, a little bit of Ray Fiennes. That's what he looked like. Okay, so somewhere between the Nunjuring and Voldemort, but not ooh. That's an interestingly new creation. And then, in true uh, Doctor Who fashion, uh, he, he, the God Butcher, he's got to get to the gates of all eternity, <clears throat> where he can make one wish that will be the wishiest wish that every anyone ever wished. Incidentally, he, he just wish. I wish I was omnipotent and had endless wishes. Anyway, so Thor then. Announces that he says, <coughs> he said, I'm going to get together a top, 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 top notch team, top, top. And he says it like that in a way that sounds exactly like Boris Johnson. We're recording this on a Wednesday. I have no idea how that joke lands, but he, that's what he sounds that, like. That's true. There is that general feeling that uh, he's there at the moment, but by the time you get this, he might not be. Maybe not be. Anyway, they head off into a into space in a fairground ride boat, which is pulled by screaming goats, comedy screaming goats. Because, hey, kids, internet memes about screaming goats are cool. Even I thought, hang on a minute, that's past its tell-by date. There are rubbish jokes about beatboxes, rollerblading, catchphrases, catchphrases. <clears throat> the joke about, oh, we're superheroes, got to have catchphrases. Oh, you know, eat my hammer. Will that work? You know, 
Then there's loads and loads of smugly knowing cameos from Matt Damon, Sam Neill, Melissa McCarthy as bad actors in the new new Asgard theme park history of Thor. Then there's a comedy sequence, an extended comedy sequence in some secret god lair where Russell Crowe turns up as Zeus doing what I think is meant to be a Greek accent. I thought it was Italian. Sorry, that's, I think is Well, Zeus is Greek, right? I know, but he might have spent Fine. some time. But he sounds like Jared Leto. Oh, oh, he okay. sounds like Jared Leto. He goes, "Yeah, you know, I'm uh, I'm I'm a Zeus. I got a thing with the blah blah blah." And then there's a joke about women fainting at the sight of Chris Hemsworth, Mr. Happy. The CGI is unspeakably poor. It, the whole thing looked like it was. It would probably improve from motion smoothing. Um, it was. At times, I was reminded, there was an article in Cine Fantastique magazine back in 1974-75 that described Flesh Gordon, the uh, soft porn remake of Flash Gordon, as the best mounted turd we have ever seen. And I thought that bits of Thor Love and Thunder looked like a rubbish CG remake of those bits from Flesh Gordon. Now, look, here's my problem. It's one thing for the Marvel audience to get bored with the Marvel Universe. It is quite another thing when the makers themselves don't seem to care about it either. I mean, yes, there are LGBTQ plus friendly subplots. So what? That should be a minimum requirement. That is not a reason to exist or a badge of merit. Also, the unearned sentimentality about illness and then a completely fatuous thing about, you know, love trumping vengeance. Also, Existing in a world in which everyone makes a big deal about sacrifice, but sacrifice doesn't mean anything when the character will reappear very, very shortly. I thought the whole thing was soul-suckingly wrong. I mean, you know, I love Hunt for the Wilder People. I kind of enjoyed Thor Ragnarok. This proves that my concerns about Jojo Rabbit being wildly overrated were, were it correct. Doesn't, it doesn't prove that. One thing that I thought was interesting, there's a joke in which Jane is explaining astrophysics and she makes a joke about interstellar but before that she says did you see event horizon i thought well great at least somebody has noticed that event horizon was the precursor to interstellar other than that i thought it was absolute balderdash and i really sat there thinking i've had enough of this now i have re- this is so tired and so w- if you're gonna do it do it don't just do two hours of sarky, oh, not be making a superhero movie, but be being funny about it. <laughs> it just stop, stop. I thought it was, I thought it was absolute rubbish. You want to discuss the Silver Surfer sequel? Yes, and we've already discussed it. They want you. Yeah, but it's a boring part. I'm tired of being the girlfriend. Listen, here's the twist. It's a reboot. Okay, Silver Surfer dies and the girlfriend takes over. This is exactly what people want right now. High concept, feminist, lady-led superhero movie. All right? They are going to go nuts over this. Are you serious? You want me to play the Silver Surfer? She wants me to play the Silver Surfer. Yeah, I sure do. I would even pay to see it. And they're ready to write you a blank check. Who's directing? A hot new British filmmaker. Directed Grimes videos. His name escapes me. Babe. (laughs) Irma is not happening. All right, don't worry. I'll make sure they pay you out. The new Sky Atlantic series, Irma Vep, I'm delighted to say that its star and executive producer, Alicia Vikander, uh, joins us somewhere. I'm not quite sure where you are. We can see pictures of you, Alicia. Where are you? I'm, I'm in France at the moment. 
Well, it's very nice to very nice to see. I last spoke to you for uh, Lara Croft. Mark first spoke to you when you were marrying into the Danish royal family. Yes, I remember that. I'm shocked that you remember. I gave you a a Kermode Award for Best Actress, which was a statue of me. I very, very much remember it. I remember I was so shocked that I was invited to your program and I was really honoured back then. It was, you know, right in the beginning when I I hadn't done many interviews at all, I think. I think it must have been one of my first interviews in English, probably. What what did you do? What 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 did you do with that award? That statue of Mark. I mean, I can't imagine. I'm sure it's on a mantelpiece. I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's front and center. <laughs> uh, I think it's. Um, it's hopefully should show up pretty soon because I I literally moved. I mean, we've had this country house for a while, but quite recently we finally moved in to our main house. Uh, so hopefully it's going to show up when I'm unpacking years of things that have ended up in storage. So you've lost it. <laughs> that's why Alicia is saying. <laughs> no, I hope not. So that's all a very long time ago, and you're slightly more used to interviews in English, I think. So take us take us to the beginning of the story of, of Irma Vep. I mentioned that you're a producer uh, on this, so you're on board from the get-go. Just explain how you how you got involved with well, it. Well, I, I, I've been a huge admirer of Olivier Sayas for many years, and I we met about six years ago now. And we connected over the love of film and filmmaking. And uh, over the years, we continued to meet when we passed through the same city. And so it was once again, I was in Paris and we had lunch. And then he brought up this idea that he was going to do, well, a, a reimagination of um, Abep, his film. And I think I probably had a similar reaction to maybe a lot of other people who know his work. I was like, oh, he's going to go back and touch, you know, an extraordinary film of his that he's already done and intrigued to just understand what he meant with that. And then, you know, he, he, he started by, you know, giving me an idea of telling me that he wasn't finished, I guess, with that world. He asked me if I was interested to be part of it. And I think I immediately just just said, yes, I wanted to be part of his project. And, and also I've been so curious to wonder what it's like getting to uh, work with his dialogue specifically. So um, when I said yes, he just went back and said, OK, then I'm going to start writing. <laughs> so I had a bit of a similar experience as the audience now, I guess I, I kind of had a new episode coming in every few weeks. And uh, in that sense, I was invited by him to kind of be part of the process or, you know, obviously he, he is the writer and main and only creator of this, but it's been wonderful to kind of have him uh, inviting me to be part of discussions and uh, throughout the entire pr- process about the series and uh the meaning of it, and then, of course, putting together a, a team. When he's when he said he wasn't finished with it, when he wasn't finished with the idea in the world of Irma Vep, what do, can you explain a bit what he meant by that? He, uh, of course, is quite not just open, but quite vulnerable in a wonderful way, opening up about his own past and his love, and not only for love and uh, for for cinema, but also for a specific person. But he, of course, had a relationship, which is Maggie, who 
played the main part in Amabep in 94. And uh, by that, I think he said, it's this is the ghost that has followed me. And, and it's not only the ghost that inhabits cinema, but also real life. And he also said that that series actually came about just as kind of a blip in him preparing for another much bigger film. And he said it was only kind of created because he was bored and he, he was waiting for finance to, to come together. There was no money there. And he was like, I'm never going to get to do this thing. So now I'm here with my friends and I have this idea. And he wrote it in like, I don't know, a few days. And I think they shot it for like 20,000 euros. <laughs> and uh, he said then it became like one of those films that people still today want to talk to me about. And I almost don't know how and why it happened back then. But then it became one of the biggest films of my life. And in that sense, I kind of want to go back now when I'm more aware of what it is and what I want to continue to say. Hi. So we wanted to properly introduce ourselves because, you know, we're going to be neighbors and everything. So, so. Okay. Okay. Bye. Are you always this unfriendly? I'm not unfriendly. Okay, you're not. No, 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 no. You're not unfriendly. Every word you say is like a warm cuddle. And that is a clip from A Man Called Otto. It stars Tom Hanks as Otto, O-T-T-O. O-T-T-O. <laughs> and Mariana Trevino as Marisol, M-A-R-I-S-O-L. <laughs> the only Marisol I've ever met in my life is yes. you, yeah. You spell your name all the way through the film, that's why I spelled it. Right, as opposed to A-U-T-O. Yeah. Yeah. And Mariana, you don't get to spell your name. No. <laughs> no. But no, but I love the name because it has the word sol, in, its, in the name, and Sol in Spanish is sun. Mm. So I thought always that was a nice little You are a bright, thing. bright source Thanks. of light <laughs> and enlightenment. <laughs> As indeed is this film. You made a grown man cry, so thanks. Aww. Tom, tell us how you, tell us about the film and how you got involved in it and then the same thing. Well, the original Swedish mm. film, A Man Called Uva, yes. is gorgeous, beautiful. We saw it six years or so ago. Oscar nominated. Yes, yes, for best film and, you know, uh, rightly so. Uh, Rolf Losgord, who played Uva, um, I was watching him as uh, I'm competitive and uh, I'm <laughs> jealous and anytime I see somebody, you know, just tear apart a magnificent role, um, I'm uh, I'm in awe, but there was also that thing of there is there is a lesson that America go through here, and uh, uh, absent some you know contrivances of living in Sweden, socialized medicine, and forced retirement, what have you. But um, I thought if if uh, and my 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 wife Rita actually verbalized it before I did. She said we have to make this movie in America, and you have to play this guy because um, starting at the very bottom of one's existence and having their life completely altered by this burst of sun, <laughs> sunshine that moves across the street, the worst thing that he wants, but the best thing that can happen to him. Mariana, same for you. How did you, how did you come to this movie? I, I was so lucky. I don't know what I did good, so they sent me a, <laughs> a, a, a good thing uh, from above. No, seriously, this has been obviously a life-changing experience internally for me. I've had the lifetime honor to act with one of my favorite actors from my whole life Aww. and to get to see how what a wonderful person he is and, uh, and, and be a recipient like this closely of 
his enormous soul and the general and everything that he pours from it. You must understand, she saved us. This uh, this audition came off uh, uh, that that was so. We watched it three times. Rita said, "You have to see this." We watched it three times, and it was Mariana, just through the magic of looking in, looking at us through the lens and playing this test scene. There was, uh, we we were blessed. We just said, "Well, there she is. There's Mari's soul," and all came about. And if you are from the Spanish-speaking world, you yes. know exactly who this one is. <laughs> yes. So, she, she has a formidable presence in, the, in, uh, in a, yeah, Mexican cinema and theater. Yeah. So, yes, absolutely. So, very well known in the Spanish-speaking world. But is this your, so your first Hollywood film? Yes. And yes. your first Hollywood film and you're opposite Tom. Yes. Yes. Not yes, bad. That's huh? what I thought. Because your relationship is really at the heart yeah. of the movie. Can you, can you explain, Mariana, how you impact on... Otto's life. Otto's life. Well, uh, you know, we kind of, I love the first scene because it's the truck coming clumsily oh. into the neighborhood. And that's exactly what happens. Yeah, yeah. They're moving in. Yeah, they're moving in. Yeah, they're moving in. A family of Mexicans is yes. moving across the street. This is the last yes. thing that Otto wants. Yeah. He's like, ah, oh, it's going to be noisy. It's going to be this and that. I don't know. But we come like that. It's very symbolic because we come bumping into everything, not being able quite to fit. But, And he makes us, he, he helps us fit the truck into the place. So this whole interchange in the beginning is great and symbolic because this is what we do into his life. We come barging in, you know, tumbling into all these uh, resistances and all this rigidity in Otto's life. And, and hopefully the, uh, just making way into and making a heart space necessary for processes that we both have. Because yes. Marisol also has unfinished processes, just like Otto has. And I think they meet mm. both ways. I interviewed Frederick Backman for the book back in 2014. Something oh, really? Like that. And I remember reading the book and thinking, okay, this is, gonna, this is going to do very well. But can you explain, Tom, what, why is Otto the way he is? Why he, because he was Irva in the original. Yeah, Otto. right. Why is, because he appears to be superficially, he's just grumpy, but it's much more ah, profound. There's so that. much there about the rules. I, th I think what I got from uh, the movie, and, and uh, the, the, we both read the book and just took everything out of it and put it in our pockets for every yes. day on the set. Oh, I know what he does here. And I know why he exactly. does that. He has lost, uh, I don't want to overuse this, but he's lost his faith in the future. When, when Sonia, his wife, was with him, every day was a pleasure. Every day was something to learn. She brought color to his life. This is like stuff that comes from, from the screenplay. But what I, what I took away was as long as she was there, tomorrow was going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And she's not there anymore. So he's lost. He has no desire to see tomorrow. He, tomorrow is going to be a pain in the butt. And it, it, even more so because, first, nobody follows the rules on his street. He's the only guy who cares about the rules. And then this person keeps knocking on his door to either ask for something or ask about him or reminding him of something or bringing him something to eat. And he does not want to have to deal with this. He's all over. And Bachman's novel, um, although very much rooted in the way Sweden works, you know, the battle between Volvo and Saab, you know, uh, uh, a mandatory retirement age and, and what have you, that doesn't necessarily exist in the United States. But that frustration of why can't people just follow the rules, that's one yeah. thing that's huge. But then there's also the cynicism that goes along with loneliness of, I'm done, I've got no one else to go for. That, uh, that has to be combated, and you can't, I, at the end of the day, I don't think you can do it alone. It has to come by way of 
outside almost acts of God. You know, a tornado comes into the street and it levels everything and everybody's equal. Or this Mexican lady moves across the street. She is the tornado. Her. Yes, she <laughs> is the tornado. She is, yeah. You and your family are, are, uh, are, exactly. are tornadoes. But it's worth exactly. just saying, it's, it's a very profound film, but it's funny. There's a physicality to your role, a physicality to Otto as well. Can you just, because you're very pregnant through, <laughs> through most of the film, and when Otto slams the door in your, in your face, you put the you, foot the you size three, which foot, is like a little one like this. But you're putting up with nothing. <laughs> Huh? You don't put up with anything. Yeah, no. I mean, because you know, we're it's it's and and this comes out in the film. I mean, you need a lot of energy and kind of will force to settle into another country, and mm. to make a space within a society that where there are you know rules and you have to kind of go through them and bend along with them to settle and keep on with your life and and build a space for yourself. And this requires a lot of you know, force. Mm. So it's kind of like the foot in the in the door, like, okay, I'm here. I'm part of the conversation because we're all cohabiting and and we're all conversing this reality together. And and I think also the fact that she's pregnant, she's about to give a child. I love that we give a space to the image of the mother because we all come from a, a mother. It's such an act of bravery and just, mm. there's a Spanish word for giving birth, which is alumbramiento, and it's giving light. Oh, uh -huh. light is a, this yes. is a theme to this. Yes, yes. Why didn't you tell me this when we were making the movie? <laughs> I, just I would say, oh, well, of course. There's no, there's no more formidable a force in nature than a mother who wants to tell you something. Exactly. You know? And that's, wants yes. to bring light to your world, whether you like it or not. Yes. And on the physicality, Tom, just becoming Otto, there is, he's a very upright man, physically and morally as well. Can, could you just explain a little bit about how, how you become Otto and uh, what we see when we see him? He precise. does not move without a very specific purpose. You know, the way he, the way he does his rounds, uh, he is, he's doing it from a place of great authority and some degree of moral outrage mm -hmm. at the same thing. Mm -hmm. he, I, I, I felt he carried his discontent in his pace, in his gait, mm -hmm. in his shoulders. I think the only time you actually see Otto sort of relaxed in moments of hopelessness where he's just so beaten, he's so tired, he just finally sits down and his, and his shoulders sag. One, one thing that did come out of it is if you look at this carefully, both Otto and uh, Marisol knock on doors the same way. There's not kind of like, are you home? Not like that. It's, it's like, come, 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 come. That's that's what it. Outside of pounding with your fist, it's literally like, I'm here. Open the door. I have something to tell. That's the way. That's the way Otto does it as well. But he finally goes around, and starts knocking on. The door. You think the glass is going to give way? You mentioned uh, yeah. uh, your wife being a producer uh, uh, on the and, film and stuff. composer of the and song at the end. Writer of the, of the movie. song does it all. Yeah. E exactly. And your son Truman is in uh, when there's sort of flashbacks yes. to you guys when you meet for the first time. Is that a first? That's well, a first not, for You him, know, we it? didn't go in that direction. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Rita Bake produced this movie just so she could get the song at the end of it. But Mark, Mark Forster is the guy who literally, he brought all these possibilities to us. He's the director. Yeah. yeah, the director, excuse me. Um, he says, why, why can't Truman play you as a young person? And I said, well, I, you know, Truman wants to be, you know, wants to be a, behind the camera you'd have to ask him if he wants to hit the marks and tell the truth and do all that kind of so they he worked we were ambivalent about it said so, you know not an easy that's not an easy ask 
although for Mark it was because we looked exactly the same at the age of 26, you know? So there was a DNA kind of like blood harmony that went into a sense of the body language. What I, what I love about the, the actor who played young Otto, I won't say my son Truman, <laughs> is that he brought a kind of like guilelessness to it. He brought a kind of like, almost like a need of how wonderful it is that this lady is looking at me. And he actually said that one yes. day. Uh, to us. I said, how are you going to approach it? I don't know. I'm just going to think like, how lucky I am that this girl is looking at me. I said, oh my God, Beautiful. you've actually said something so perfect that I'm yes. going to take that with me as well. He is like, uh, dangles the possibility of a future. Uh, whereas Otto, old Otto, is like, it's all done. I'm all mm. finished. There mm. is no future. And I thought that's, that's kind of like a perfect yeah. young and old. This feels like a very unusual, I, I know we said it's your first Hollywood Picture, but it feels shot like, in Pittsburgh. Or in your Hollywood Pittsburgh, movies made in Pittsburgh. Yes, but, <laughs> it, but it feels like a very old-fashioned film. Mm -hmm. There are no superheroes in it. There are no car chases. I mean, there are some action scenes and so on. <laughs> but it, it's almost like a film that isn't made very often. Mm -hmm. Would that be fair? Well, yes. I mean, uh, it's like going back to the basic practices of being with each other, you know, the neighborhoods. I mean, uh, they have changed in, with time as well. I grew up in a neighborhood where, where I played with my, 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 my neighbors still, but that has changed. My sister's kids don't play with their neighbors anymore because we have been become more fragmented as societies and the nuclear families become more uh, inside and there's less of sharing um, in a community that we have, I have observed that. So, so it's kind of going back to that because the neighborhood is symbolic of a whole country and as a whole globe. I mean, uh, you know, we live in community. This is how we are made. We are made to coexist and to learn from each other and to learn through the others about ourselves. And, and this is the way we were made as human beings. Hmm. Otherwise, it would be different. Well, here in the, in the UK, I see these row houses. Is that where they're called? You know, where they're right next to each other. And yeah, I was, muse houses? Muse, well, you know, just like you're going to like, there's like, what are the semi-detached, semi you know, what are, yeah. Do they all know each other? I mean, does the neighbor, if you share a wall, do you know the person intimately? Do you, or do you keep some brand of safe distance because we don't mm -hmm. want to become too involved with it? Our, our neighborhood, this neighborhood in... Uh, in a man called Otto is like, so many reasons to be suspicious of your immediate neighbors. <laughs> yes. So let's be careful because we might come to blows over something in the future. Yeah, and yet what it left me with was, it only occurred to me on the journey home was it felt, it reminded me of It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, yeah. That it had the same spirit to it, even though, you know, it has sadness and it has lightheartedness, but that's how it, occurred to me. Do you think that's... I, I, I could, I'm outside of angels, you know, and heaven and all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, there's none of that. No. But, it, but, you know, it, it, is, um, it is an aspect of a, a community realizing that if we don't help, and that could George Bailey, um, no one will. And so the people decide we're going to, we're going to band together mm -hmm. and, and save this guy in this very specific time of crisis that he's going through. And that it happens, yeah, it does happen in a man, man called Otto. Because mm -hmm. there's one, there's one. Actually, I, I, I remember reading it and saying, ah, I, I don't, I don't know how that works. And it's when I go inside and I won't answer the door, and Marisol mm -hmm. is outside saying, "Come on, come out, let me know what's going on, how come?" And it doesn't just separate us; it 
hurts her because she knows that it's better to belong to something bigger than just yourself. And that, I think, that's very much part of the, you know, some people call this, I think the most impossible thing to do is to make a Capra-esque movie because Capra was a genius in understanding you incorporate human behavior, not plot devices, you know. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of kind of, you can put a hat on a hat in a scene and make everybody understand, oh, here's where you're supposed to feel sorry for the people. He didn't do that, certainly not in It's a Wonderful Life, and he didn't do it in an awful lot of other films, and I don't think Mark Forster does it either. Mm -hmm. He refuses to be manipulative or fake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're out of time. Tom, Mariana, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. I want a Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. Hey, let's root for 2023. Come on. (laughs) Yes. I think there's hope out there. So we just wanted to tell you about what our friends at Rooftop Film Club are up to. As you know, they are London's king of outdoor cinema. More than just a movie with Rooftop Experiences located at Bussy Building in Peckham and Roof East in Stratford. Sit back, relax, get cosy in a blanket and use the QR code on your seat to have food and drink delivered directly to you. They're playing all the award-winning films like Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, All of Us Strangers, but also classics like Interstellar, When Harry Met Sally, and more recent films like Challengers and Fall Guy. Rooftop Film Club offers memberships for as little as £25 per month. That's not all. As a Vanguard Easter, you get two-for-one tickets on a Wednesday with the code THETAKE24. That's T-H-E-T-A-K-E. 24. Visit rooftopfilmclub.com. Hello, it's William and Jordan here from Help, I Sexted My Boss. And next Tuesday, our show at the London Palladium will be streamed live into cinemas. So if you want an evening full of laughs and outrageous problems and dilemmas, then come along and join us on the big screen. Help, I Sexted My Boss live is showing everywhere and everyone's welcome. Go to sexedmyboss.com slash cinema to get your tickets now. That's sexismyboss.com slash cinema. So now we've never done a big kind of tribute section on the programme because we didn't have the freedom uh, before. But uh, we thought it might be an interesting idea just to mention some of the people who died uh, this year and acknowledge what their contribution um, has been and um, just a little salute as they as they've left us. Yes. So we'll do the I mean this is in no particular order. I'm just mentioning some some of the folk. And can we also point out because I think this is worth pointing out. We are recording this on the 21st. Um if so if, we might miss some people. No, who, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. so, I mean I'm not saying that as a joke. I'm saying it as a serious thing that you know it's it's it if something happens between the 21st and when you're listening that's why we didn't exactly. No, and I say that because News only just broke about Mike Hodges dying, um, which who is obviously a really important figure. So explain, because he's not on our list. So, well, Mike Hodges is was a, a a really fine director. He made Get Carter, which I had the great privilege of writing the sleeve notes for the recent um, BFI 4K reissue. His filmography is really extraordinary. Um, Flash Gordon is in the middle of it. And I had the privilege of interviewing him uh, during lockdown because I think Flash Gordon was reissued. Um, I think it was briefly in cinemas and there was a, you know, I think there was a, a, a new print of it. And he was talking about, I said to him, you know, look, when you look at your, your filmography, which includes things like Black Rainbow, Croupier, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, Get Carter, Pulp, and then in the middle of it, Flash Gordon. How did you end up doing Flash Gordon? He said, I have no idea. He said, Dino De Laurentiis, who was the guy who produced Flash Gordon, 
said to him one day they were having a meal whilst he was making it. And he said, Dino, why did you ask me to do this? I mean, I'm, I'm, and Dino De Laurentiis said, Mike, I like your face. And he said that was the only answer he ever got from scary. I like your face. <laughs> that was what Dino De Laurentiis said. Anyway, he was a great, he was a great conversationalist. He was he was working on a on a film, which I, I I wonder whether it was finished. Anyway, he was uh, you know a great uh, British filmmaker. Get Carter, I think, is still one of the absolute classics. And when they had that um, Michael Caine auctioning off his stuff recently, well, recently a few months back now, there was so much Get Carter memorabilia, posters, signed albums, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it is a real milestone of British cinema. So, Angela Lansbury, uh, who, of course, who, who, who has a fleeting but significant cameo in Glass Onion, which, you know, yeah, you, very would, briefly, and you yeah. would, yeah, but it is very briefly, but it is, it, it's there. Uh, David Warner, Ivan Reitman. Hang on, can I just stop very quickly about David Warner? Because David Warner, whose, you know, filmography is extraordinary. I made a Straw Dogs documentary, and of course, David Warner is in Straw Dogs. He's also, he's brilliant in time bandits and in the omen he has probably the most famous scene uh in the omen but anyway he was in in relation to that straw dogs documentary david warner is one of those i mean he's you know he's a, an extraordinary actor and uh with, with an extraordinary cv and anyways i made the i had made the straw dogs documentary so i'd spent a lot of time thinking about david warner Ivan Reitman, yeah. Monica Vitti, Queen of Italian Cinema, Robbie Coltrane, Hagrid, Nuns on the Run, uh, KGB Man uh, in Bond, and Angelo Badlamenti. Well, Angelo Badlamenti is a particular personal thing because I, I know, uh, forgive me for having, for repeating stories which I've told before, but if I can't do it now, then when? Mulholland Drive started life as a television pilot, and the pilot then got canned. But it was going to be relaunched as a film. Well, of course, famously, it not only got relaunched as a film, it got relaunched as a film which many people consider to be David Lynch's finest work. I think it was at the top of the sight and sound poll of the best films of the first 10 years of the 20th century. So I interviewed Angelo on stage at the Edinburgh Film Festival at the point when they were working on Mulholland Drive and it was somewhere between being a TV show and being the film. And, of course, Angelo Badalamenti is in the film. He t appears on screen in Lynch's films quite often, but he is the person who gave Lynch's films that atmosphere through his music, which is, broadly speaking, a lot of suspended chords, a lot of... Um, you know what a suspended chord is, yeah? Yes. Yes, fine. Um, but do you want to... Uh, yeah, just in case anyone doesn't, I'm sorry. But So a suspended chord is a chord that sounds like it, it hasn't resolved. It sounds like <laughs> it's... You have a, ma a major chord, you know, blum, then you have a minor chord, which has got a dropped third, and it sounds sad, it just does. And then you have a suspended chord, which is a chord that sounds like two things slightly buzzing against each other, and it needs to resolve, it needs to go somewhere else. And Angelo Badalamenti's work, his music work... He uses a lot of suspended chords, but he did this absolutely brilliant thing, and I will, I, I'll remember this for the whole of my life. He was on stage with a keyboard, and I was just interviewing him about his process and about how he writes and how, how, how he works. And I said, can you tell me how you would set about writing the Twin Peaks music, for example, because I ended up writing the sleeve notes for um, 
for the Fire Walk With Me soundtrack um, at the, the request of Angelo's office. And he did this thing, and it's the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. He's subsequently done other versions of it that you can find on YouTube. But he sat at the keyboard and he said, well, you know, I'm, I'd be sitting here at the keyboard and then David would stand beside me with his hand on my shoulder and he'd go, we're in the woods. And Angela would go, I go, these woods? And David would go, no, no, it's sli slightly darker woods. He said, and then there's, some, there's, some, there's something moving in the woods. And then Angelo would move his hands up the keyboard and say, it, 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 it's an angel. And he would, literally, he did this routine of David Lynch, and he did a brilliant impression of David Lynch, talking him through the construction of the key themes for Twin Peaks, and it was breathtaking. And I was nominally interviewing Angelo, but you must have had this same experience. You ask somebody a question, and then you just get out of the way. You literally, you just sit back, and, and in that moment, and I don't think he'd done it before, because if I remember correctly... He said after doing it, I really enjoyed that. I must do that more. And now if you go to YouTube, you can actually find a video of him pretty much doing the, doing that same thing. I'm not saying I invented it. I didn't invent it. It was just, and I did a lot of those things at the, at the Edinburgh Film Festival of having composers like, you know, how Shawcott Burwell would come on and would talk through their scores and how they would, but Angelo Badalamenti describing how he worked with David Lynch is one of the fondest memories I have. And he was he was lovely. I messaged him a few times over the years. He would always reply, you know, generously. And, uh, and he was just a fantastic composer. Who else have we lost this year? Wolfgang Peterson, right. uh, Das Boot, Olivia Newton-John, James Kahn. Sonny Corleone, of course, Ray Liotta. Yes. Who was also, we talked about him in, when we talked about Blackbird. We did, I mean, obviously yeah. not his most important, it's not exactly... No, although it's a significant role. Yes. And Michelle Nichols, who's a lieutenant, who has, you know, whose place, not only in entertainment history, but in political history, is really, really important because, you know, she, it, it is impossible to understate culturally how important the Lieutenant Uhura role was and just because. what a kind... Well, because... Because it was an African-American woman in a mainstream science fiction but seen by everybody TV series in a an important, crucial, central role. I mean, there's all the stuff about the Kirk and Uhura kiss being a really, really, you know, groundbreaking piece of television. But she was famously told by somebody really significant, what you're doing is really, really important. And it's absolutely right. And she continued to be proud of that, rightly so, because it was just, you know, when Star Trek started, one of the things that Gene Roddenberry was trying to do was to make something that was culturally, socially relevant and and boundary pushing. In fact, he, he t told a story once that he had wanted the Enterprise crew to be completely evenly divided between men and women. And the studio stopped him. They said, no, 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 that's no. Which is kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. I was, I was going to mention Shelby Dean just because she was like at the beginning of her career. And we mentioned yeah. uh, that she was in Triangle of Sadness. And, um, and you interviewed her co-star. And yes. And Matthew Finlayson just got in touch saying, Shelby Dean, who was surely destined for stardom, had her life not ended so abruptly. I saw Triangle of Sadness at the weekend. It was a little difficult to reconcile with the vibrant on-screen personality having uh, left us already. Anyway, just mentioning her, William Hurt. Wow. Of course. And of course, as I have said many times, and I'm sorry to go on about this, so my favourite movies 
include broadcast news in which William Hurt is absolutely extraordinary. And Ken Russell's Altered States. There is a scene in Altered States in which um, William Hurt does the does this it's like a it's like an almost uninterrupted monologue and he's talking about his character is searching for the the essence of human existence and he's drunk and he's in a party which a whole bunch of stuff is going on and Ken Russell had said that they were told that they were not allowed to change or cut or lose one line of the script so he said to William Hurt he said okay what you have to do is you just have to do, do the whole thing really fast the whole movie has to be fast otherwise we're going to be here for 3 hours and the scene of William Hurt doing the the thing about the human soul is a real thing, you know, tangible and blah, 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 and I'm going to find the, which I can't say, was a phrase that I would repeat to Ken over and over again. And sometime later, Ken's uh, partner, Lisi, gave me a thing with that written on it, which is a line delivered, which is one of my favourite movie things of all time, as delivered by William Hurt. Also, we lost this year, uh, we've mentioned It's a Wonderful Life quite a few times yes. in the last... A uh, couple of weeks. Uh, Virginia Patton, who was Ruth Dakin Bailey. Uh, Leon Vitali, Rick Parnell, Spinal Tap. Sorry, I'm just drummer. I'm just looking through this extraordinary list of... I mean, I'm sorry. I know this is a thing. I know Christmas is a time for looking forward and looking backwards. But, I mean, it's... Yeah, I, I, I had... Yes. Sorry, kept What? No, it's just it's just a really really extensive list. Yeah. It's just giving me a sudden. You I don't know, think it's any more extensive than normal. But you no, know, of when, course not. Of when you look not. at the talent that's gone, Marilyn Bergman, Irene Cara, very recently, uh, Meatloaf. I'd forgotten that he he died as well. And of course, I'm a Meatloaf fan. I loved Rocky Horror, and I loved Bat Out of Hell. And when my good friend Matt O'Casey made a documentary about Meatloaf a couple of years ago, I turned up in it, and a whole bunch of people said. I never had you down for a Meatloaf fan. And it was like, why? I, meatloaf is so in my wheelhouse or, 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 or ballpark. I mean, it was it was proper theatrical. And he was in Fight Club as well. And in Fight Club, yeah. It's a very um, fine role in Fight one Club. One of our correspondents, Mohamed Shakir, said, people don't appreciate how extensive Meatloaf's filmography really was. Some great, some forgettable, but all with a particular panache. Kirsty Alley, Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, who, who you and I had interviewed not so long ago because he'd done the documentary about um, Buster Keaton. Louise Fletcher. Uh, Louise Nurse Fletcher, Rat who is... A, 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 now, I should say this because it's important. So Louise Fletcher, of course, you know, famously won the Oscar for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Have you ever seen Louise Fletcher's acceptance speech for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? It's, it's perfect. There was a lot of controversy about that role and about the thing, and she said... You know the whole thing about, you know, you like you like me, you really like me, that speech. Well, Louise Fletcher said, you know, I'm really glad to get this award because it it tells me you really hate me because because of the role of the treasure. Of course, Louise Fletcher was also in Exorcist to the Heretic and uh, did her very best to keep a straight face even whilst having to read that nonsensical dialogue. Someone who we also lost this year, Sidney Poitier, is a, a, just a reminder, there's a fantastic documentary, I think it's on Apple, about Poitier, which is... Just if you've got any doubts about his importance, you're talking about um, African-American actors making, making a huge difference. The Sidney Poitier story is quite astonishing. Where is that? On Apple? On Apple I, think it's on, I think it's on Apple. Did and you ever, It's also on the BAFTA oh, okay, site fine. to look at for, for the BAFTAs. It's a really, really, really good. And he was, because of uh, where he came from, he was allowed to be knighted. So I think he had one of the honorary knighthoods. But anyway, it's oh, really... Oh, I didn't know that. It's, it's, but, you know, more importantly, the first black man to win an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Lead Role. 
as Homer Smith in Lilies of the Field. Anyway, it's just, I mean, where, where to start? But. Did you did you ever interview him? No. Quote, he is a man of great depth, a man of great social concern, a man who is dedicated to human rights and freedom. So, That's Martin Luther King Jr. on, yeah. on Sidney Poitier. Yeah. yeah. And Hesh, uh, we lost, but also you'll probably want to say something about Doug Trumbull. Who, uh, who yeah, I mean, I, you know, look, I'm sorry to just to, to flag up the people that I had met. Because obviously, there are so many and we could we could talk individually about any of these. I mean, you know, at least about Anne Hesh, who had an extraordinary acting career. But Doug Trumbull directed, you know, my one of my favourite movies of all time, Silent Running. And uh, that was a film that, that affected me so profoundly when I was a child. I can't tell you what, you know, what an extraordinary effect it had on me. Anyway, Trumbull had a very truncated career as a feature film director because he had a very hard time in Hollywood. In the case of Silent Running, his was one of, I think it was five pictures that were that were made for limited amounts of money and you know that was a fairly good experience his next film was a much more difficult experience in which uh, a key member of the cast died towards the end of filming and the film company basically didn't want him to finish the film what they wanted to do was to to collect the insurance anyway the whole thing did finally get finished but it left Trumbull with the feeling that he was pretty much done with feature film directing. What he what he was interested in after that was, because he had come from a background in sort of experimental and experiential uh, film projection. His father had worked as a special effects guy on The Wizard of Oz and had worked on the flying monkeys from The Wizard of Oz, right, which are the scariest things in The Wizard of Oz. So he had been a sort of a real pioneer of high frame rate and all that stuff that ended up kind of becoming, you know, part and parcel of the of the current, uh, you know, collage of cinema. But he did the VFX work on Blade Runner. And I made a documentary about Blade Runner. And when we started doing it, I said, can I please meet Doug Trumbull? Because, you know, I mean, I love Blade Runner and I love the effects in Blade Runner, but I, I just love to meet Doug Trumbull. So anyway, we went out to Doug Trumbull's studio in the middle of nowhere and I spent, and I interviewed him for about an hour and then I spent another hour with him just talking about his career and Silent Running, which I ended up writing a small book about and asking him to show me stuff from his archive. And it was, he was a giant, an absolute giant of cinema and so much of what happened later on in terms of the way in which, you know, cinema developed was to do with work that Trumbull had done. And I just think it's a real shame that he didn't direct more features. But if you leave behind Silent Running, I mean, wow. It's it's like, you know, it's it's just a work of genius. I, I love that film. And he, 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 did this, he did this brilliant thing. I said to him, I said, you know, one of the things that always troubled me about Silent Running, well, it didn't trouble me at the time, but it troubles me afterwards, is, you know, they're walking around on the spaceship outside and there appears to be gravity. But it's interesting that you didn't put in a line about, oh, we'll turn on the gravity field. And Doug Trumbull went, yeah, I know. And I went, it's also interesting that a botanist doesn't realise that the problem with the plants is that they don't have sunlight but then I thought, well, it's because by that point in the narrative, he's kind of lost the plot. And Doug Trumbull went, yeah, fine. I just thought it was brilliant that somebody who is really, really technical understood that his film wasn't about science, 
It was about the emotion of it. And yeah, okay, none of that stuff made any sense. And? Well, would that not? Okay. Doesn't bother me. Bruce Dern said in the whole of his career, he worked with two geniuses. One of them was Alfred Hitchcock and the other one was Doug Trumbull. Well, that's the end of uh, this particular uh, take. There's more stuff that's dropping all the time, uh, as I'm sure you're aware. But I'm sure you're thinking... Being a Vanguard Easter is such good value that maybe I need to just, for the new, one of my New Year resolutions should be to tell my friends. It, it, yes, I mean, I, I would tell friends if I had any. <laughs> <laughs>